you'll turn with me to Esther chapter 7. Esther chapter 7. We'll look at the entire chapter this morning. That is on page 414 in the blue ESV Bibles if you are using those. Esther chapter 7. Title of our sermon this morning is The Queen's Feast and the key words for our worshipers in training are feast, enemy, and gallows. Now throughout history there have been many plots Uh, to murder famous and powerful people. Most of the time, those plots have thankfully been unsuccessful. Uh, One such plot took place on October 14, 1912, when Theodore Roosevelt was campaigning in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, for the office of President of the United States. Now, Roosevelt was giving a speech, and uh, while he was doing so, he was shot by a saloon owner named John Schrank. However, Schrank's bullet hit a steel glasses case and a 50-page speech that Roosevelt had rolled up in his front jacket pocket, so the bullet simply uh, penetrated the skin and lodged inside of his chest. And now you, you would think that getting shot at and having a bullet in your chest is a good reason to take the day off from campaigning, but the presidency was on the line for Roosevelt. And so he went on that day to deliver his scheduled 90-minute speech that could never happen in America today, opening with the line, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know whether you fully understand that I have just been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. And uh, Roosevelt had the nickname Bull Moose as a result of that. Another instance with a U.S. president was January 30th, 1835, when Richard Lawrence attempted to assassinate then-President Andrew Jackson. Lawrence pulled a pistol on Jackson, and it misfired, so he quickly drew another pistol, which also misfired, and not taking too kindly to be shot at, to being shot at, not once but twice, Jackson immediately rushed after Lawrence, got him on the ground, and beat him with his cane until the police came and took Lawrence into custody. That is my kind of president. Now, so far in our journey through this story of Esther, we've seen at least one murder plot foiled completely. When two of King Ahasuerus's eunuchs sought to kill the king, but Mordecai made it known to Esther, who made it known to the king, and in turn, those two eunuchs were hanged for their attempt. And if you'll recall from chapter 6 that we looked at last time, Mordecai was rewarded for his swift action to help the king, all to the shame of the king's right-hand man named Haman, who was made to parade Mordecai through, uh, through all of the palace grounds on the king's horse, wearing the king's robe, wearing the king's crown, announcing that this man is being honored for all that he has done. This, of course, enraged Haman all the more toward Mordecai, and Haman sought, remember, he was seeking to kill Mordecai and all of the Jews in his plot because Mordecai would not bow his knee to Haman. Well, we saw last time that it was probably uh, coming close to the end for Haman in terms of his ability to follow through with his plans. Remember, Haman had built gallows 50 cubits high to hang Mordecai, and his plan was about to be hatched when, by God's providence, the king awoke in the middle of the night and read the book of deeds and wanted to award Mordecai. 
Now in the midst of all of this, remember Esther is working her plan to save not only Mordecai and not only the Jewish people, but her very own self as a Jew. She wanted to save the Jews from the genocide that had been decreed and planned by Haman. She had hosted a banquet for King Ahasuerus and Haman at which the king promised her whatever she wanted. And at the time, all she wanted was for those two men to show up again tomorrow for another banquet. And so in chapter 7 today, we find ourselves in the second banquet. We find ourselves in the middle of a murder plot, and we will see how it all turns out. The decree has gone out to murder all the Jews among all of the kingdom, and that day was yet to come. The gallows had been built for Mordecai. However, Mordecai had come to the king's attention and was honored. Remember at the end of chapter 6, Haman's wife and friends who just a chapter before were listening to him tell them how great and wonderful he was and how honored he was are now telling him, you're probably a dead man. And Esther has the king and she has Haman eating out of the palm of her hand. And not only will we see Haman's murder plot against Mordecai taken down, but the plot of genocide against the Jews taken down all together. So let's begin reading in verses 1 through 6 where we see our first point this morning, that what's done in darkness will always come into the light. Look at verse 1 with me. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Now it seems in the past few months we have all woken up each morning to turn on the news or to open the newspaper or, let's be honest, for most of you to go look on Facebook or Twitter and to find out who the latest celebrity or politician is that is being accused of some kind of scandal or impropriety. They're being outed. We're learning more about people and their personal lives than we ever wanted to know before. Well, thus far in the story, we've seen Queen Esther have some very big issues in her life that she has kept quiet all along, and to keep all of that under wraps has taken her a lot of effort. Remember back in chapter 2 and verse 10, we learn that Esther never let it be known to her husband, King Ahasuerus, that she is a Jew. It was by design. We don't know why exactly, but we know that Mordecai told her to not let it be known that she was a Jew, so she never did. So for five years, nobody knows that Esther, the queen, is a Jew. Nobody knows her relationship to Mordecai. 
And what was it that caused Haman to want to annihilate the Jews? Because Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. And Mordecai is a Jew. Therefore, Mordecai and all of his people needed to die. Little did Haman know, little did the king know, to fulfill this decree to eradicate the Jews would have included eradicating the queen herself. But think of what this meant for Esther. We've brought this up before, but she would have had to have hidden her nationality, not just by never disclosing that she was Jewish, but by breaking virtually every law in the law of Moses. The food she ate, the clothes she wore, the special times and seasons of fasting and thanksgiving, the lack of prayer to God, the assimilation with the world around her, taking on all of the pagan influences of the Persian culture, she abandoned her Jewishness. And nobody knew whatsoever. However, now was the time. Now it was time that Esther's name was on the front page of tomorrow's, tomorrow morning's newspaper with the shocking revelation that Esther is a Jew. There's no turning back. There's no getting out of it at this point. She had gone too far, and she knew it was risky because the king had proven time and time again that he's unstable and he's unpredictable. What would he do? How would he respond? Well, depending on his mood and seemingly depending on the direction of the wind, the king might make a decision opposite today of what he might decide tomorrow. And don't forget, none of this ultimately would have been successful without the king having to revoke a law that was put in place by Haman using the king's signet ring and thus making this a law of the Medes and the Persians, which by tradition was irrevocable. You see, this, was a, this wasn't just a tricky task. This wasn't just a difficult task for Esther to fulfill. This was in all human wisdom and insight an impossible task. What did Esther really have to offer the king? She had a pretty face. We know he loved how she looked. Very clearly, she has a sharp mind. But she agreed back in chapter 4 that she was going to step up for the Jews. And ever since then, she'd been putting it all into place, all of the necessary steps to bring this to pass and to save them from Haman's plot. And here she is. She's getting the king. She's getting Haman to the banquet. And by now, the king had publicly committed at least three times to give her whatever she wished, even up to half of his kingdom. The time arrives. She cannot delay any longer. All of the pieces in place. It is her time to speak up for the Jewish people. And notice, like we've seen before, the way that she addresses the king, her own husband. She says, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, if it pleases the king. She's very careful to make sure that she appeals to his, self, uh, his, his self-absorbed sensibilities. He's always happy to be sure that whatever is decided and however it's decided was his good idea. It was his plan to do these things. Well, she has him eating out of the palm of her hand. Queen, what is your wish? What is your request? And since he gave two offers, she made two responses. Verse 3, the first thing she says, Let my life be granted to me as my wish. And secondly, let the lives of my people be spared for my request. Now, right off the bat, it would seem odd to the king that she's asking for her life to be granted to her. What is this all about? 
the big reveal is coming. She's uniting herself with her people for the first time. And if they are destroyed because of Haman's decree, she too will be destroyed along with them. She goes on, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Well, she's all in now. This isn't, this, this isn't just about them. This is about her. This isn't just about Mordecai. This is about the queen. And the queen and everyone with her is in danger. They've been sold off to be annihilated. There's no turning back for Esther. We are to be destroyed. We are to be killed. We are to be annihilated. And it's interesting, she never actually reveals that her people are Jewish until the next chapter, and the king doesn't seem to care. He never asks who Haman would destroy in the first place. If you recall, when, when Haman brought this whole idea to the king, he never asked him, who are these people? And what of these people are you, why of these people are you wanting to destroy them? But Haman knew. Haman knew exactly what Esther was talking about. He knew what it meant. You could just imagine that while she was talking... It's just him and the king and Esther. And as she's talking, you can imagine him staring down at his plate, his eyes very wide, his heart beginning to race, his skin turning bright red. Esther quoted the very words of the royal edict that Haman had written, so there was no question who she was to Haman at this point. And notice, too, how she continues to appeal to the king's sensibilities. She says, Look, if this was just a matter of us becoming slaves, in other words, all that he hears is, if this was just about us serving your kingdom, I would have never brought it up. It wouldn't be an issue. Your needs are greater than ours. We're not going to complain about that. We want to serve for the kingdom. If that was the issue, no worries. We would have done that. You wouldn't hear from me. But, but dear king, please hear me. This is about our lives. Now, undoubtedly, she had played everything right, and the king is on the edge of his seat, filled with rage. Who would dare endanger my queen? Who would dare go after her and her people in my empire? She's good. She is, she is so subtle. She's so artful. She's so crafty with her words. We've been sold. I and my people. She was, she was paving the street, and then she was leading the king by the hand on a walk directly to Haman. And he followed right along. First, she points out a few details along the way to get him angry about this injustice toward the queen and her people, knowing that it's only a matter of time before he asks the all-important question that we see in verse 5. Who is he? Where is he? And how dare he do this? Now, of course, in all reality, Esther could have just held up a mirror Ultimately, it was the king's aloofness, it was the king's unwillingness to ask the right questions in the first place that he allowed this decree from Haman to go forward in his own name. Ultimately, it was the king himself who approved the genocide of the Jews to include his own wife, the queen. None of these events could have happened without the king's complicity. But that was not Esther's aim, not All injustices can be set right in the course of earthly events. 
So instead, Esther leads the king down the path of anger right to Haman's doorstep and says in verse 6, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Not looking good for Haman. And the text tells us that suddenly Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. He had been completely outsmarted by Esther's cunning strategy, and he could see very clearly that the king was not in a place to offer forgiveness for this wrongdoing. Haman was very quickly getting an education in something that we all need to remember. We cannot do things in the dark and assume they will remain hidden. Luke chapter 8, verse 17 says, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. The past few months of media coverage have shown us that, and you better believe there's no shortage of people looking to expose others, and especially Christians, as hypocrites and liars. This should make all of us consider our own actions with fear and trembling. What do we do or or what have we done that if we revealed, it could end our careers, it could end our marriages? For pastors, thinking about what what is going on in life that could end one's ministry? What have we said or done that could put a guy like Haman to shame? Realize this, that nothing that we do in this world is a secret to the Lord. What you do late at night, what you do when you text or chat with someone online, what you look at on your computer screen, what you you think about that you would never dare say to another person, it's, it's pretty easy to stand on moral high ground when you read about a guy like Haman and think about his life, but it should always remind all of us of the wicked state of our own hearts. This week, when we watch the news, whatever scandal breaks, because there will be one, whatever new revelation comes out about some celebrity or politician and their misdeeds that we don't really care about, what we see is a man or a woman besieged and potentially undone by controversies of their own making, and we should weep. We should weep for them, for the people directly affected by their sin, And also for ourselves, because if it were not for the restraining hand of God's grace and our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, what would keep us from going the very same way? And and we all know this. We all know the danger of living in the darkness, and we've all experienced the relief, the, the joy of actually being exposed in our sin and being able to talk openly of our sin, the anxiety of hiding our sin and living in the darkness, it, it, it's released. It's always painful at first, but once it's out in the open, we, we can talk freely about it and start dealing with the consequences instead of always looking over our shoulder, instead of telling lies upon lies. We can move on with our life and be honest with ourselves and with others. Honesty, truth, it's healthy. Physically, we're better. Mentally, we're better. Spiritually, we're far, far better when we live in the light and don't seek to hide our lives. And we learn very quickly how foolish we are in trying to hide our lives. It all comes out eventually. It all shows up in the end. It's all revealed in time. And of course, none of it is hidden to God. And this is particularly true if you're a Christian And this is God's grace. 
It is God's grace that he will not allow you to dabble in the darkness forever. He will mercifully rescue you by exposing you. Remember when King David, remember, remember his sin with Bathsheba, and then having her husband killed, throwing the whole nation of Israel into chaos in order to protect himself, to hide his own sin? He sought to keep things hidden in the dark, but the Lord wouldn't let that happen. He sent to him the prophet Nathan, who exposed David to make it known, and it was only after David had to come face to face with his sin that we saw him return to living out the purposes that God had for his life. It's merciful that God reveals to us our sin and exposes us when we're in the darkness. Regardless of the circumstances, Brothers and sisters, we should all desire that God would throw on the lights when we're standing in the darkness. There's a reason we hide it. There's a reason we're in the darkness. And I assure you, it's not because we're doing something that's going to increase our communion with God. Now, most of what we are entertained by in the world is about something being hidden, right? Most of the stories throughout history have captured our attention, have captivated our imaginations because it's about something being hidden. It's about a plot or uh, some kind of revelation, some kind of mystery behind the scenes and all the characters are at work to keep these things hidden. And while that might work out in a movie for our entertainment, how does that work out in your life? You're in sin. And then you sin more to keep your sin covered up. And then before long, you find yourself telling lies upon lies upon lies to keep things covered up. You lose track of what you've said and to whom you've said it. And then before long, you stop listening to your conscience. And you're like your parents, Adam and Eve. When you hear the voice of God in the garden, you run and you hide as if you could hide from God at all. It's merciful that God has made it so that you cannot hide from him because he loves you enough to expose you for your own good that you might once again see darkness as dark and light for light. But if you're not a Christian at all, the reality is that you live your life in darkness, that there is no light at all. You may think yourself an honest person. You may think yourself a good person. But even Jesus asks, why do you call me good? Friends, no one in this world is good. We're not good people, and that's the whole point of the gospel. That's what we see time and time again throughout the scriptures. God has a law that we cannot keep, that we cannot fulfill, that we cannot do, but that is his standard for salvation. Everyone you meet will admit that they are not perfect, but that is a big, big problem because God's standard for life is perfection. And it's true, we're not perfect, so we all deserve everlasting death, but God, but God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world as a man to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, fulfilling the law, to die a sinner's death, fulfilling the penalty, to be raised from the dead, to conquer death, to conquer sin, to conquer Satan. And when we trust in him, when Jesus is our greatest and most prized and most trusted treasure in this life, we have life everlasting and we will be brought on this journey with God in everlasting life to dwell with him forever. The light we once hated is now attractive. 
We are drawn to the light like a moth. We want out of the darkness that we want so much loved and cherished. We, we want what God has given to us. And take heed, dear Christian, you, you will be tempted to find some kind of fleeting joy in the darkness that you think you once had. There will be times in your Christian life that you will be like the Israelites looking back to Egypt and saying, but it was so much fun. There was so much there that I enjoyed. It's so tempting to look back, but you forget that when you were there, you were a slave. You were a slave to your sin. Live in the freedom of truth. Live in the freedom of Christ. Live in the freedom of the light because you will not want the consequences that come with being exposed. It's better to deal with the consequences of being in the light when you come out of the darkness than it is to come to the end of your life and to stand before the Lord who says, Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. Well, a lot of evil has unraveled throughout our story of Esther thus far, but even though God's people have seemingly been aloof to any necessity to remain faithful to God, we see our second point all throughout the story, really, but the remainder of this chapter. God always delivers His people whether they are faithful or not. Look at verse 7. The king arose in his wrath from the wine-drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, and Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs and attendants of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that had been prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. The king had heard enough. He needed to take a walk. He needed to get some fresh air. He needed to cool down. His best right-hand man had betrayed him, had tricked him, had put the queen's life in danger. Now, of course, Haman didn't know that he had done that. The king didn't know he had done that. And the king was just as responsible in the end. But intemperate monarchs are rarely bothered with the facts. And the reality is that in the end of it all, Ahasuerus wasn't going to lose much sleep over Haman's death. What likely bothered the king more than anything at all was the issue of his own reputation. I've said this could happen. I have allowed my signet ring to be used to make this the law of the Medes and the Persians. I have put my own queen in danger along with all of her people. What does this say about me? And this is costing the kingdom a tremendous amount of money. What would it look like for him? And it's a tricky dilemma, but certainly not one that caused him to have much grief over Haman's life. Side men will come and go, but the reputation of the king was on the line. 
And, and you can just imagine the scene as the Bible paints it for us. The king comes back in and he sees Haman falling on the couch. On his, he's, he's kind of leaning over the edge on his knees. He's panicked. He's pleading. There's tears running down his face. His hands clasped. He's begging to the queen, please spare my life. The man who had sought unwittingly to take her life now wanted Queen Esther to save his and see what even his begging does. See how the king interprets it. Look at verse 8. Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? You see, the king needed an excuse. He needed to take Haman out without making an embarrassing reference to the edict. And Haman's face was covered as he was dragged away. Of course, there was no way that Ahasuerus uh, really thought that Haman was probably seeking to rape the queen. But that was a convenient response. That was something to point to. So ironically, the one who wanted to kill a Jew for not falling down before him was now being dragged off and killed for falling before a Jew. Haman was to be hanged in the very gallows that he prepared for Mordecai just 24 hours earlier. What a difference a day makes. His murder plot was foiled and reversed. He fired two guns and neither one of them went off and so the king beat him with his cane until he died. And the text says this all abated the king's wrath. The issue was resolved. The threat to Esther was taken care of. We almost get the impression that it was like the king saying, okay, good, we've got that taken care of now. What is for dinner? But remember, Haman may be gone but the edict to eliminate the Jews still remains. That's still on Esther's mind. That still needs to be dealt with. There was still a need for the king to undo what had been done fully. Otherwise, it remained as a ticking time bomb, waiting to go off the destruction of all of the Jews. Esther might be safe, but what's the point if all of her people are eliminated? The mission would be failed if in the end she didn't accomplish what she ultimately set out to do in the first place. At this point, she must still have wondered if she would be able to achieve her goal of rescuing the Jews, and we will see in the chapters ahead what happens with that. But here we are once again with this very important lesson that we've been learning all along. God is there. God is faithful. God is intricately involved, and God will protect His covenant regardless of what His people do. And this is a wonderful truth for all of us. It's full of hope. It's full of assurance. God will certainly, certainly deliver His people whether or not we are faithful. We can be sure of this truth because His actions are derived from His character and not ours. As Paul reminded Timothy, if we are faithless, He remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. It was possible to be certain all along that Haman would never ultimately triumph. Not because we have confidence in the great cunning of Esther, but because we have confidence in the great covenant promises of God. And in this day, his covenant promise to the the seed of Abraham. God declared in Genesis 12 that those those who curse Abraham's children would be cursed. So Haman was not simply taking on the Jews, but he's taking on their God. 
And what we see in this chapter is simply the outworking of the negative aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. Haman had assaulted the descendants of Abraham, and he would have to face the consequences. And this truth means that even at this point in the story, when everything seems to be hanging in the balance, the Jews had no need for fear. For if the negative consequences of the Abrahamic covenant were still in force, then surely so too was the positive goal of the covenant, that the Lord would be Israel's God and they would be his people, and that the Son of Man would come through their line. Patience might yet be required to see exactly how God would deliver his people from their enemies, but his commitment to do so is not in doubt. The Lord does not change, and that should give all of us great confidence It should give us all great hope. It should give all of us great hope in our personal lives, in our families, in our church. We don't have great hope because of the vast wisdom and abilities of men. We don't have a great hope and assurance because you have great elders or pastors. If your hope rested in these things, we might as well shut the doors right now because rather than resting on human wisdom on human abilities, on human resources, our confidence in God's promises to build His church are found in His sure and stable word that God will build His church in such a way that the gates of hell will never prevail against it. And just as important, we may have hope in our struggle against sin, Our hope lies not in our own progress or our personal strength. We cannot pull ourselves up by our own efforts. We cannot make progress in the Christian life on our own. And the more evident that becomes, the longer you walk with Christ. As we grow in spiritual maturity, as we see the depths of our sin and the deceitfulness of our hearts, all of this becomes all the more aware to us. Yet we may have confidence that we will make progress in godliness because we have the promise of the Holy Spirit that is at work in our hearts, generating His his fruits of righteousness and holiness in all of His people. The work may not progress as fast as we wish that it would, but it's progress, and it's assured by God. He promises it. We're not simply to sit back and let go and let God We are to strive as Christians with every effort of our being toward the holiness which God has designed for us. But once again, we do so with confidence, knowing that God will work His righteousness in us. And on that day when we stand before Him, we know we will be received, not because of us, but because of Christ. In the meantime, in the meantime, He will use our awareness of our own sin to drive us again and again and again to the cross in repentance, again and again to the cross in thanksgiving for His patience and for His grace with such unprofitable servants as ourselves. And you know one of the great truths that we see in all of this? That the basis for our appearing before the Father is not if O king, I have found favor in your sight. If, O king, it is your pleasure and your desire. No, our basis before our king is I know that Christ has found favor in your sight, and I am his, and he is mine. And so our destiny, our standing before God is is bound up in Christ's if we are Christians. 
Will God the Father give us up now that we are justified by the blood of the Son? Can his enemies snatch us out of his hands? Can Satan's accusation, uh, accusations move us from his care? Can death itself drag us out of his presence? Not with a king like the one that we serve. No one and nothing can take us away from his great love. There is no condemnation for us if we are in Christ Jesus. If our faith and trust are placed in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. Do you know that sure and certain love of the King? Some people have built their entire lives around their career, around their family, around their reputation, around their own personal perceived goodness. It's not enough. Perhaps you've, you've experienced something like a Haman-like fall in your life, and for the first time you're beginning to see that success is not sufficient. Perhaps you haven't yet had that experience in your life. One day, though, we will all inevitably discover that truth. Whether we give our lives to whatever it is in this world that we go after, or the true and living God, we will recognize it is true. Inevitably, we will find out sooner or later that what we are in this life apart from Christ is not enough. But why would we give our lives to anything or anyone other than God who has loved us so much? Why wouldn't we want to follow such a king who is so kind and so gracious and so good to his people? Why wouldn't we bow down before him willingly and, and surrender our whole lives to him for richer or for poorer, for better or worse, in sickness, in health, whatever it takes? He has loved us. Is he not worthy of all of our praise? Is he not worthy of our very hearts? All who believe the gospel need to hear this over and over again, those precious words, no condemnation Christ has found favor before the Father for you. Christ has made peace between us and God, a peace that nothing on heaven or earth can destroy. He is worthy of receiving afresh today all of our praise from the bottom of our hearts. He is worthy of all of our trust because we serve a mighty and worthy King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our great Father in heaven, we thank you that we can be reminded one more time again this morning that you are in every detail of our lives, that you are at work at every turn, around every corner. We know you are there. And so we pray this morning, God, whatever is going on in our individual lives, that you would help us to be all the more ready to walk in the light, to come out of whatever darkness that we seek to keep our foot in, that our desire for unhindered communion with you would be far stronger than the desire to return back to the slavery of Egypt. We pray, God, that you would work in us a greater longing and a greater desire to live our lives in the open that our yes would be yes, our no would be no, that holiness would be our aim, that repentance would be on our voices, 
that we would seek to live reconciled lives before you and before men. May it be, O God, that this be the heart cry of all of your people and that you would receive all of the glory. For this is your church. We know you're building your church and strengthening your church and making your church all the more faithful. And so may we walk in faithfulness as your church. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.